Uh, in 2016, we were preparing for our firstborn uh, to be born. It was coming, we were getting ready for getting the nursery ready, and as we were getting the nursery ready, uh, my wife and I began to hear this noise coming from our attic. It sounded like scratching. It sounded like a saber-toothed tiger lived in our attic is what it sounded like. It sounded gigantic. We assumed we had raccoons. I see some of you nodding your head. Some of you have gone through the same experience. Uh, we assumed it was raccoons, and when, we, when I got up there, I saw with some evidence that it seemed to be a smaller animal, which I assumed was a rat. Um, and so I placed rat traps all throughout the attic. This was my plan to be able to capture the rat and be able to be the, the husband that I was called to be. And so I went and did all the research, got the best traps, put them up there, put a little peanut butter on there because I guess rats love peanut butter. Uh, and this was the plan until one point, um, which I thought was a wonderful plan. I hear my wife scream in the nursery, uh, which our child is about to be born into. And I run in to see what's going on, and there is a hole in our ceiling. The insulation has come down through. It's about the size of a quarter. And she's like, Caleb, this thing, this rat is now in the house. It's here. It's infiltrated the perimeter. It's here. And I began to try to go, I got a pencil to try to push the insulation back up. I got the things I needed to be able to cover the hole and replaster it. And as I'm pushing the insulation back up with the pencil, I feel something else pushing down against it. And I'm like, Leah, the rat is here. It's right above me. And so I try to shove it all back in. I get everything in place. I seal it up. I go buy more traps. I'm determined to get rid of this problem. One day I was outside, not too long after that, and I looked back at our screened-in porch, and on the screen wasn't a rat, but a squirrel. A squirrel which seemed so cute with its bushy little tail and so kind. This squirrel, however, continued to climb up our screen, onto our roof, up onto our ceiling, or up onto the very top of our roof where there was a little roof vent, and I saw it skirt right into that roof vent, and I went, oh, it's not a rat. It's a squirrel. And I've hated squirrels ever since. (laughs) The problem was, as I was fighting the wrong battle, I was convinced the problem was the rat. And I was convinced that it was coming somewhere from within. But I didn't need to try to kill the rat. I needed to focus on the squirrel. It's cute little distraction with its tail. It's a terrible rodent. It's a rodent as well. I don't know if you've ever seen squirrel's teeth. They're terrifying. Uh, They are not cute and cuddly. Then I realized the problem was not in the attic. It was actually in the roof vent. So I sealed up the roof vents, kept it from getting in, and sure enough, it solved the problem. But the issue is I was fighting the wrong fight. I had put the emphasis in the wrong place. And it was in some ways pointless. Friends, as we look at our text today, remember Peter's writing to a group of Christians scattered across churches in Asia Minor in an increasingly hostile world to Christianity. They're being slandered underneath Nero's emperor, uh, the emperor Nero, which that slander we know will soon rise in church history to persecution, uh, to killing these Christians, uh, to intense physical persecution and suffering. It's not there yet, but that's where it's headed. And Peter's writing to these Christians, helping them understand how to live as strangers in a hostile world and what they need to focus on in order to do it. And here's what I think. I think it would be easy in the first century to look outside at the world and go, you know what? The problem is the emperor. 
The problem is the culture. The problem is out there. But friends, as we've gone through Peter's letter, I don't know if you've noticed, consistently he's coming back to these Christians and telling them their emphasis in the fight is not out there, it's in here. The fight is for godliness and holiness. That's the emphasis, the sin, our desires, he says in verse 11, that are waging war against our soul. That's where the primary fight is. Oh, and friends, that's true not just in Peter. That's true throughout the Bible. Right? You remember, if you remember when we went through the book of Exodus last year? For the people of God, the problem, the barrier, the, 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 the hurdle to God moving was never outside of the people of God. It was always inside the people of God. The thing slowing God down per se was not the strength of Pharaoh or the might of his army. It was the golden calf in Exodus 32. When the people turned away from God to this idol. Oh, friends, there is no barrier to the power of God. There is no government, structure, or culture that can slow him down. He is the God of armies, the creator, the one who has made all of this. Uh, he rules in the heavens and he does everything he pleases, the psalmist says. So we trust in him. And so I think that this is particularly helpful. And this is why we've been going through this letter, particularly now in our culture, as we face an increasingly hostile culture to Christianity. I think the question is worth asking. How do we respond as a church in America today? I think that there may be the same proclivity that Christians in the first century had to place the problem out there. The fight is out there, either in politics or culture or out there, when Peter is helping us, I think the same, not only for those Christians, but for us today, the main problem in our main fight isn't out there, it's in here. And so you hear once again Peter talking about the importance of godliness and goodness and holiness as he writes again to these Christians in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, our text this morning. So you got your Bibles, you can flip there, we'll be in chapter 4 as we continue our study through the book of 1 Peter. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Peter writes this. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. And they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead. So that although they might be judged in the flesh, according to human standards, they might live in the Spirit, according to God's standards. So as Peter writes to these Christians, again, writing yet again of goodness and godliness, which has been a consistent theme in his letter, uh, there are three things I want us to see through this text. First, I want us to see three gospel resolutions. So in verses 1 through 3, three gospel resolutions. Second, I want us to see two personal costs. Two personal costs. This will be in verse 4. And finally, one final account in verses 5 through 6. 
three gospel resolutions, two personal costs, and one final account. So first, uh, here Peter begins with striving and writing them to come to three gospel resolutions, right? Begins here in verse 1. You'll see the first gospel resolution is this. Ready your minds. This is verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, he's pulling back to what he's been writing of Christ's suffering. So Christ suffered in the flesh. Therefore, you arm yourselves with the same understanding. Here's the first resolution. Ready your minds. Arm yourselves with the same understanding, the same way of thinking. You notice Peter here is talking about the mind, what it is we believe, think, and understand. And he writes to arm yourselves. This is a military kind of a term. To be ready, to have this resolve, to uh, ready your minds as though you're walking into a battle. To arm yourselves. Well, what's the understanding that we need to arm ourselves with? He's talking about arming ourselves with the same understanding that Jesus had as he walked through this hostile world and received suffering. And he suffered. He received persecution. We should have that same understanding that we will follow in the footsteps of a suffering servant. We will bear our cross because we follow a cross-bearing Savior. We need to arm ourselves, ready ourselves with that understanding that following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus will lead to, in some sense, because of your faith, suffering and persecution. It's to varying degrees here in America and around the world, but it's promise for all of us. We are to ready your mind to arm yourselves with that same understanding. It is coming because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin or ceases to sin. We need to note real quick what this doesn't mean. What that does not mean, that little clause there, that if you suffer in the flesh, then you don't sin anymore. You're just done with sin. You'll never sin again. That's not what that's saying. That's a, a wooden understanding of that text, and it goes against what the rest of Scripture and everyone's life experience uh, goes towards. Well, what is he saying then? I think just simply what he's saying, the one who is committed to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, even if it means suffering for his name, has come to the resolution that I'm going to fight sin, to cease from sin, to be finished with sin. I'm not going to live in it anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus, even if that means suffering for his name. They're finished with sin in that sense. That we arm ourselves and ready our minds with that kind of understanding. So here's my question. How do we arm ourselves with that kind of understanding? How do we ready our minds? What does that mean? And how can we do that? I think first, the first way we arm ourselves is to expect it. To expect some level of suffering and persecution for following Jesus. I think that's step number one, to expect it. The Bible, this isn't in the fine print in the Bible. This is everywhere. Uh, this, I mean, 2 Timothy 3.12, Peter writes, Paul writes this to Timothy, his young uh, protege. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not a little one-off verse in the Bible. Again, Jesus is so clear about this. It's everywhere. I think, one, we should expect it. There is, again, some streams of Christianity that will say, if you follow Jesus, your life is going to get so much easier, so much better. You won't believe how much money you're going to make. You're finally going to get that promotion you've wanted. It's all going to be better. This is the health, wealth, and prosperity. Gospel is the word, but it's opposed to Scripture, and it's a heresy because it's contrary to so much of what we see in the Bible. We do not then 
follow Jesus in order to get fatter wallets and a more dense retirement account. We follow Jesus because he's the treasure. We follow Jesus because it will lead to suffering, but he is still greater than anything else. And so we follow him. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We expect it. That's, I think, one way we can arm ourselves. The second way I think we can arm ourselves is not just to expect it, but then to evaluate it. To calculate it. What do I mean by that? This is what Jesus does consistently. It is one example in Luke 14, verses 25 to 27. Now, great crowds were traveling with him. It's important the information that Luke's, uh, the gospel writer there, puts here. He wants this to be the context. Jesus had a huge following. There's this great crowd. And here's what you see Jesus do often when this happens. He turns around and does something that makes a bunch of people leave. Gee, oh, if only he had waited to be able to read some, some modern evangelistic tactics to be able to help him. He just, oh, he didn't quite know what to say. Poor Jesus. Friends, I wonder if it's not what Jesus didn't know what to say. It's that we don't know what to say. And we don't know what we're aiming at. See, Jesus is far more concerned with the quantity of his disciples. Jesus is, hold on, wait a second. Scratch that last sentence because it's not true. Jesus is far more concerned with the quality of his disciples than the quantity of his disciples. That's the one. Forget what I said just a second ago. <laughs> so there's this great crowd traveling him. Maybe they were impressed with what he was doing. Maybe they were drawn because of what Jesus could do for them. Maybe they're drawn to him for the wrong reasons. They could make him king and overthrow Rome. Regardless, as they were traveling, he turned and said this to them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to evaluate the cost. You need to calculate it. You need to count it because it will be costly. You need to expect this kind of suffering. You need to evaluate that cost that it will take. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're like, boy, maybe you should read the books on evangelism because you're making Christianity sound awful. Why would I sign up for this? Yeah, I, my life isn't hard enough. I'd love to make it harder. I'd follow Jesus. Well, here's, here's why I think the third thing we need to understand in readying our minds and having the same understanding of suffering is not just to expect difficulty, suffering, and persecution, not to evaluate the cost of walking in and bearing this cross, but the third thing is to look at the worth and value of Jesus. I think that's the third thing. Jesus does this consistently. Again, later in Luke chapter 18, another guy comes. He's a rich young ruler, and he asks Jesus, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And the guy looks at him. He says, well, I've done all these from my youth. What do I still lack? And so Jesus looks at him. And he says, why don't you go then sell everything you have? Remember, he had a lot of money. He's wealthy. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And what's he do? He walks away sad. Because he had a lot of money. And he couldn't give it up. That's when Jesus turns to the disciples and says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? What was Jesus doing there? Was he demonizing wealth? 
All those with money should give it all away? That's what it means to be Christian? No. Then what Jesus is doing is, as Jesus does so often, he's able to see right into our hearts and identify the things that we treasure the most. And what he does with this man, he goes, here, he has placed all of his worth and value in what he has. And Jesus goes, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to replace that with me. I'm going to have to be more valuable to you than all the money that you have. And he couldn't do it. He still put his trust, his worth, all of his hope in what he had. And he walked away sad. And he, as he evaluated the cost, he looked at Jesus, he looked at his money, and he chose his money. Oh, but friends, what you see, what it means to be a Christian, we see other examples of those who evaluate the worth of Jesus. I love this in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 26. This is how the author describes what Moses chose. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. Moses looked at all that Egypt had to offer, the fleeting pleasures of sin, and then he looked at this hope that God had given, this promise that God has given him, and he said, this is greater wealth than anything this world can offer. Uh, friends, again, it's, the Bible's honest. Sin is tempting. It is enjoyable. It is pleasurable. If it wasn't tempting, no one would do it. Sin is tempting, it's, but, but the reality is that as it holds out this offer, it's fleeting. This pleasure is fleeting, and the Bible is screaming. Yes, your, your heart is longing for this joy, for this satisfaction, but it can't be found in anything in this world. So turn to Jesus and find greater wealth in Him, greater satisfaction in Him than anything in this world. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Buried in a field that a man found and then reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. That's the gospel that we are walking through life trying to find something to, to deal with the nagging guilt that we feel, to deal with this, this, this longing to be accepted and known, this desire to belong to something greater, this satisfaction that our souls are longing for, that we're looking either the pleasure, sex, money, sports teams, whatever it might be, give us something that can satisfy this. And the Bible's saying, no, it's found in Christ. And when you find that, then in your joy, you go and give up everything else for the sake of following him. I love those three words. In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has. The Christian life is not one of begrudging obedience. It is not going, man, I had a lot of fun when I wasn't a Christian. Now I've just got to go not have fun. This is what it means to be a Christian. Oh, friends, the Christian invitation is that real joy can finally be found. In his joy, can go and give up everything else because he's found something of greater wealth, greater value, greater satisfaction 
Finally, the thing that I've been longing for is here and I'll give up everything else so that I can have that. This is what it means to arm ourselves with that kind of understanding. Yes, we expect suffering. Yes, it will be costly. But friends, Jesus is worth it. He is of greater value. This is where we walk in with that kind of a decision to resolve and ready our minds. That's the first gospel resolution. Second, then again, tied into all of this is to seek God's will. This is in verse two. You really hear the next two resolutions both together here in verse two. So that in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, here's the first one, no longer for human desires. And the second one, but for God's will. So second here, to seek God's will, to live for God's will. This is the second gospel resolution. To live for God's will, not for human desires or human passions. So we're going to do that next because he's going to go in verse 3 into a list of what those are. And the question for us here is what does he mean when he talks about living for God's will? To seek God's will. What's he mean? Does he mean that we've got to go and seek, okay, God, where should I eat lunch today? Should I take this job or not? Should I marry this woman? What college should I go to? What should my vocation be? Let me seek your will. That's kind of what we, I think, often think of when we hear God's will. We think of one plan in our life, and we're trying to figure out what that plan is, and hopefully we don't deviate from it. Guys, that's that's not how the Bible talks about God's will. You have the freedom to love God and do whatever you please. This is in the Psalms. Augustine said the same thing. It's a quote from Augustine, not from me. Love God and do whatever you please. It's it's important we get it in that order. Because if you love God, he will give you the desires of your heart, the psalmist says. There's freedom in our choices. That's a whole other conversation. So what then does he mean here by God's will? Well, the rest of Peter can help us as he talks not just about God's will, but also you see it paired here with human desires or human passions. So while Peter hasn't talked about God's will in this letter, he's talked a good bit about human desires and human passions. Where is he talked about that? In chapter 1, it was in verse 13 and 14. It says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. So here's the human desires. What's he pair with here? But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. So here, the way he pairs it is human desires and striving to be holy. These are the two things paired together. What's he say in the next chapter in verses 11 and 12? 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires or passions. There's that word again. So how's he going to pair it here? These desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Again, Peter here is pairing these human desires and passions with this good and godly conduct, living honorably in good works. So I think here, what we see, what Peter's doing again, is pairing these two together. Human desires and God's will, which is for you to be holy. Which is for you to live a godly life filled with good works. Or, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, for this is God's will, your sanctification. For you to look more and more like Jesus. This is God's will for your life. For you to look more and more like him. So to seek his will doesn't mean you're trying to figure out the exact next thing you're supposed to do. To seek his will, to live for God's will, means that you are striving and pursuing holiness. 
that you are making every effort to strive in a godliness, that you are putting your work and your effort primarily towards looking like Jesus in every way, that this is the resolve to have, to seek God's will and to live for his will, to strive for holiness. This isn't just in huge external sins that we may talk about. This is also with respectable sins. That phrase I borrow from an author, Jerry Bridges, who wrote a book called Respectable Sins. It's a wonderful book if you haven't read it. And they are sins that often in the church we find to be more okay. We're more okay with those. Friends, the Bible talks about all sin as sin that separates us from a holy God. And that we would take the same level of energy towards being short and angry with our spouse or our kids that we would against lust. I just have a quick temper. That's just my personality type. Nothing I can do about it. Oh, friends, Jesus died for that. He died for your anger, that sin. Do not sit in it. Oh, but we would fight against it and live for God's will. Again, pairing this then in verse 2 with the third gospel resolution, that we wouldn't just seek God's will, but we would die to sin. Die to sin or live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, no longer for human passions. And then he gives this list in verse 3. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. And he gives this list. This isn't exhaustive. But he gives this list to be um, uh, characterizing this behavior. Carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgy, carousing or drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It kind of sums up all of that. Die to sin. Oh, friends, again, as I said, sin is enjoyable. There, it's pleasurable. But it is, I want you to hear these words. That pleasure is fleeting It doesn't last. And that pleasure is longing to destroy you. Its end goal is your destruction. And you may go, well, Caleb, it's not that bad. I've been doing this thing for for a couple months or a couple years, and it's I'm not, I'm not like about to be destroyed. You're kind of being a little dramatic. Oh friends, let me just let me just tell you, there really is an enemy that wants to destroy you, and he's fine with however long it takes. It doesn't have to happen over time. You think of the way, I don't even know if this illustration is true. I've never actually boiled a frog, but I've heard this a ton. And so we're going to use it now. But the way in which you boil a frog, you just do it a little at a time. Gets comfortable with the temperature, you turn up a little bit more. Until eventually it's sitting in water that's killing him. I'm sure at some point the frog would jump out. But anyway, it's an illustration so I can say what I want to say. And people have said it before. So (laughs) there it is. Friends, sin is the same way. Its end goal is not to try to just give you everything that you'd want. That's the promise it's telling you. That's the lie. It is deceptive. But the hope is that what it has, the hope that that sin has, that the evil one has, that temptation has, is to offer you exactly what you want, but it's got a hook inside of it. Again, I'm not a fisherman by any stretch of the imagination, but a friend of mine did take me deep sea fishing for the first time a couple years ago. I had not been before. This guy had grown up fishing. Like it was his life. He lives and breathes it. And he took me, this novice who doesn't really know what he's doing, out on a boat. And I drop my line and I'm reeling it up. And all of a sudden it feels like I catch a refrigerator. My line isn't moving anymore. And all of a sudden that refrigerator starts pulling back. 
I don't know why the, I keep having these encounters with animals that are fighting against me, but regardless, I'm then starting to reel this thing up and it comes up to the top. And what I catch is the second largest grouper that that captain had ever caught in his boat before. This guy that had given his whole life to fishing had never caught a grouper like this before. You may be wondering who it is. I'm not going to tell you. I would never embarrass Steve Van Dyke that way. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I've been giving Steve lessons ever since on how to, how to fish. And here's the thing with fishing. The way that you catch a fish isn't just to drop a hook in. There's not a fish in the world that's going to bite that. You drop in bait. And that bait looks exactly like what they want. It's food and they're drawn towards it. But when they go to bite it, there's a hook hidden inside of it. Well, friends, this is exactly what sin is. It is destructive and it looks like what it is you want. And I get it. Again, it's pleasurable, it's enjoyable, but that hook will set and it will lead to your destruction. And the offer, the invitation of Jesus is not stop doing what you want to do, what's so fun, and come and follow me. The invitation of Jesus is come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I can give you joy. I can forgive you for your guilt completely. And maybe you'll be like, Caleb, I hear you, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how much, even this past week, I've just enjoyed sin. I can't now come to God. I'm going to feel like a hypocrite. I don't know, if he, I don't know what he'll do when I come to him. Oh, I'll tell you exactly what he will do. We get this story in the story of the prodigal son. When the son leaves and spends everything he has, and he gets to the end of his rope, when he finally comes home, what does the father do? Oh, he was looking for him in the first place waiting for his son to come home. And when he sees him a long way off, he runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, restores him back as his son and has a huge celebration because his son who was dead is now alive. His son who was lost has now been found. This is the heart of God, which I would not believe if he wouldn't have said it. I would have assumed he was more like me. And if someone came home to be like, well, okay, I'm glad you're here, but I hope you learned your lesson. I did tell you this was going to happen. Friends, that's not what God is like. As our sin increases, His grace multiplies all the more. That's Romans 5. That's what God is like. There is no sin in your life that can keep you from God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness if you come to Him. Oh, friends, this is... This is the invitation of Jesus to come and find joy, forgiveness, life, and freedom in him. Finally, to turn from the things in this world, to stop living for human desires, living for human passions, and to die to sin because in your joy, you've finally seen this one who can give you the things that your soul has been longing for and answer this problem of guilt that separates you from a holy God. This is the invitation. And these three gospel resolutions. Second, Peter then shows two personal costs that come from a result of those resolutions. Because you may be saying, Caleb, I thought we were talking about suffering in this part of the letter. Why are we talking about godliness and not living sinful lives and living godly lives, seeking his will? Why, what, how does this go together? Well, here's how it goes together. Peter says, if you make those resolutions to strive for a godly and good life, to live a holy life because God is holy, the world is going to think you're weird. This is verse 4. Look again. They are surprised 
that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And they slander you. Friends, there are two personal costs that come as a result of that decision. The world will be surprised at the choices that you make. And the world will be slanderous. Again, friends, we can expect that. Darkness does not like to have light shine on it. Darkness hates the light. This is what we see in John 1. It's one of the reasons why the world rejected Jesus. There is suffering that comes as a result of living this way. And I think this is important to see. There's a couple of things I think that's important here in this verse to get our minds around. One, again, Peter's been talking to these Christians, telling them to engage with their opponents in gentleness, with reverence before God, or to be winsome, to, to present their arguments, to present their faith in a winsome kind of way with the hope of winning them to Christ, gentle and reverent before God. But notice Peter now also says that no matter how you engage with them, if you live a godly life, at some point misunderstanding and being maligned will come as well. You see, I think there's this lie that I don't necessarily hear stated, but I see practiced a lot within the church. That if we say something that is true of who God is and the world gets upset, well then we've just said it the wrong way. Uh, we need to either not say that thing, we need to change how we say it, or we need to change what we believe. Because if people are upset, if the world is upset, well, then we're doing something wrong. Uh, friends, this verse just shows us so clearly that those two things are not at odds with one another. That the world will misunderstand you for following Jesus. They will be surprised. Oh, why don't you come out with us? What's the big deal? Just come out. You should come out all the time. Why don't you come hang out with us tonight? You know, we'll go have fun. It'll be great. Why have you changed? Why are you different now? And you may even begin to be called names. They may begin to talk about you in front of your back and behind your back. And they begin to slander you because of the choices that you're making. If you lived in a lifestyle contrary to Jesus with a group of friends and you felt the, the saving power of the gospel and God created you into a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, you've experienced this. As your friends looked at you and were like, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you doing this all of a sudden? They are surprised and they slander you. Oh, but friends, it's important for us to see that this is expected. You can say things in the most winsome way possible, in the most gentle way possible, and still the world may hate you and slander you. It is not automatically then the result of something you said or what you believe. We don't have to alter our beliefs. The way of Jesus is countercultural to every culture that's ever existed. If Jesus perfectly aligns with our culture or with your beliefs, I want you to just think about that. If Jesus never pushes against your own heart or against the things that a culture values, is that really God? Have we as American culture finally figured out who God is perfectly, that he just perfectly falls in line? Or should we expect a transcendent being who created the world, who's different from us, to in some ways cut against the grain of every culture? Friends, I think that that is in some ways an apologetic that Jesus is real. And not the fact that Jesus just agrees with me all the time. That's a God not of the scriptures. That's a God that looks a lot like me. Not us created in God's image, but we've created a God in our image. 
Oh, friends, it will cut against the grain and will lead to surprise and slander. But the other thing I think that's important in this verse is Peter's talking about suffering that comes as a result from living a godly life. I do want to say this as well. I think when we talk about suffering and persecution, I think we automatically think of, say, Christians around the world or throughout church history that have led to them losing their life or being in prison. That we run to that and we go, oh, well, me being like misunderstood or like being called names or not getting promotion or being fired, that's not, that's not suffering. That's not persecution. And we almost lessen it. I think it's good to see that there are varying degrees of suffering and persecution, but I want you to see really clearly here in the text that slander and surprise, being maligned and being misunderstood, are real forms of suffering. That kind of social dislocation that comes, if you're a Christian, you're the only Christian in your family, and you feel yourself ostracized from your family, well, friends, that's a real form of suffering. And persecution. And Peter here is writing to help you. How do you navigate then those relationships? If you're in your job and you then are being called out for following Jesus and you feel eyes given towards you, you feel the conversations that cease when you walk into a room. You've been called before a manager being, uh, because of something that was uh, accused against you that you didn't do because of your faith. Friends, how are we supposed to live in a world like that? I think that's the way, the world that Peter's writing to. Strangers and exiles in a hostile world. We do not have to automatically think, I'm doing something wrong. And maybe we are, we need to examine that. But that's not the ultimate solution. We can expect this. And that this is a cost that comes with following Jesus. I think that's the kind of understanding that he's saying that we should have. Living this godly life will bring some form of being misunderstood um, and being maligned. It costs something. But ultimately, Peter concludes with this comfort in verses 5 and 6 of one final account. Because Peter's writing to these Christians who are receiving the suffering. And he reminds them then of this final account in verses 5 and 6. He says, they, those that are slandering you, they will give an account. To who? To the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Who is this? Who is the one ready to judge the living and the dead? This phrase is used in another place to clearly identify this judge as Jesus in 2 Timothy 4.1. Again, Paul writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing and his kingdom. Paul, I think Peter here, is attributing this judge to be Jesus. I think that's why he's saying that this judge stands ready to judge. I think this is Jesus who is waiting in heaven, ready to come in this great judgment that will be for the living and the dead. Why does he say that? Because that's every single person who's ever lived is either alive or dead. Either alive right now or they died. And Jesus is the judge of them all. It's all encompassing. He is the one who will come and judge. And this is why it's important Again, sometimes I'll hear this when talking about Jesus. People go, oh man, the Old Testament God, he just, it was so wrathful and holy. There's so much judgment. I like the New Testament God. Give me Jesus. He's different. He's a different kind of a God. I like that one. We look at him in the Gospels and that's the God for me. And friends, I will just say, yes, I believe in a New Testament Jesus. But when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, those two are not at odds with one another. 
God the Father and God the Son are not different expressions fighting over who will win. They are the exact same. Jesus is the exact image of the Father, the expression of His glory. All of His nature is seen in God the Son. Not just His love, mercy, and forgiveness, but also we see this is Jesus in verse 5. He is Jesus the judge. In Revelation, He comes back and He judges the living and the dead. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. They are the same. And he is the one who will come and all those who slander, all those that you may receive suffering and persecution from will have to give an account for those actions before God. Peter's saying, you can take comfort because the evil that you're experiencing will not be unnoticed and it will not be unaccounted for. And that then frees the Christian to respond in a very different way to those who do evil against them. This has been what he's been writing about in this letter. Do good to those who do evil to you. Love your enemy in the words of Jesus. How can we do that? Because this is true. Because we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. That we do not have to take matters into our own hands and try to be the judge because the judge stands ready. We can then stand to love our enemy as ourselves and do good to our neighbor um, who maligns us or brings suffering against us. But not only is there encouragement in the fact that they will give an account, but there's also this encouragement in verse 6, which again is a weird verse because you may pick up on it when we read through it. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead. Now your translation may not have that word now right there. Some translations have it, some don't. Your translation may say, for this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are dead. And you may go, what in the world? As Peter, Peter said, Paul wrote things that were hard to understand. Peter, what are you talking about? It's been a couple weeks now. We're just like, what is going on? Uh, anyway, it's there, beside the point. Peter's here is talking about preaching the gospel to those who are dead. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that there is a gospel preached to those who had physically died and Jesus went to give them a second chance in hell or wherever it might be. That's not what he's saying here. Again, I think the right understanding is in that translation that adds the word now, those who are now dead. That those who have died, believers who are now dead, the gospel was preached to them. Because you've got to remember, again, think through the context of where Peter's writing. In the midst of this section on suffering in a hostile world, he's now writing to those Christians that make the commitment to die to sin and live a life alive in Christ that receives suffering because of it. And he's saying, but you can take hope because they will give an account. But those who have died, oh, people may look at them and be like, what difference does it make to be a Christian? They die just like all of us. And Peter's saying, no, they will not stay dead forever. This gospel that they believe, yes, they were judged in the flesh according to human standards, and they are now dead, but in the spirit, they will live according to God's standards. That there is this hope of a resurrection, this life that is possible for all those that died, that the comfort that Peter brings here to those experiencing suffering is that those who have maligned you, if they don't trust in Jesus, they'll give an account. And you, even if your suffering and persecution leads to death, it will not lead to death forever. You will live in the spirit according to God's standards. Your last breath won't be your last breath. This is the incredible hope of the resurrection that Peter ends this section with. You will live forever. 
And so continue. You hear he's raising the eyes. If you've been with us through 1 Peter, he's doing the same thing he's done so often. Raising our eyes to the end of time. When Jesus will come again, this living hope in the resurrection. Looking at this home that we are going towards. Peter's way of living in this world only makes sense if we have our eyes on what is to come. And the resurrection is real. It's not this kind of earthy thing, ethereal thing. It doesn't really make sense. This was true for me for so long. The resurrection was just kind of this idea. But then someone close to me died. And the resurrection became far more tangible. I think about uh, Harry Potter, the books, the movies. There are these creatures that can only be seen by people that have walked through or experienced death. Friends, I think in a lot of ways, the resurrection is in some ways like that. The resurrection clicks into a different gear whenever someone close to you dies. And all of a sudden, it's not this ethereal thing. It begins to have feet. And you begin to know that, oh, this is a real reality. That the resurrection, not just of Jesus, but for all those in him, that I will see this person that I loved again if they trusted in Jesus. And so we grieve, but we don't grieve like those without hope. There is a very real thing that we have in this hope that we would live in the spirit according to God's standards. Friends, you hear Peter here again, striving to help these people see the problem is not out there. It's in here. Focus your energy here. Y'all, your, your primary strength and effort should be on this war waging against your own soul. These desires, these passions. Work in your godliness. Strive for holiness. Put to death this sin within you. Put your effort there. That's the thing that we should be striving for. Friends, the most impactful thing you can do in a culture hostile to Jesus, in a culture that's hostile to his followers, is to strive to look more like him. And then pray that God would move in incredible ways. Now guys, again, all you have to do is look back at Exodus. Pharaoh was no match for God. The strength of Egypt's army couldn't slow him down. God had an 80-year-old guy with a stutter and a stick, and he delivered his people. The thing that stood as a barrier, if you're reading through Exodus, the point where you're reading, you go, I don't know if they're going to make it. Wasn't at any point there as they were going against Pharaoh, but it was there in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. And friends, as we enter into a different season in America, one that's more hostile to the Christian faith, again, I fear that we may have eyes to think the problem is out there and we put our primary effort out there. Doesn't mean we don't engage in the world. Again, you see, Peter isn't saying we withdraw, we engage, but we put our effort and our hope and our fight within ourselves to strive to look more and more like Jesus, trusting ourselves to the one who judges justly and the hope that we have in this resurrection. Let's pray.